Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Yaren, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along today. And uh, I understand that as we're speaking, uh, I'm in sunny Brisbane and you're in Edinburgh. Oh, hi, good new, as they say around these parts, but probably in a much better accent. Yes, I'm. <laughs> I'm in the uh, the I'm in the sunny climes of Edinburgh, preparing for bringing two shows to the Fringe Festival as we speak. Oh, fantastic! And how long have you been there for? I arrived yesterday from Riga in Latvia uh, after eating my fill of smoked fish and enjoying the Baltic sunshine. And uh, yeah, you know, it's a fabulous time to be in Europe. Well, you seem in uh, in very good spirits. I lived in Stalin for a year. Back in 1978, uh, uh, but I was mainly based with my dad's work in Dundee. I don't think Dundee was nearly, nearly as exciting as Edinburgh, particularly for a 10-year-old. Definitely not. And look, I think Edinburgh most of the year is not as exciting as Edinburgh is at this particular month. And I think there's a that's what culture does. I mean, this is Edinburgh's, the buzz that happens in Edinburgh is cultural. It's literally hundreds of thousands of people arriving to see stuff and that right. makes it particularly brilliant well that's uh fantastic and so uh why don't we just start uh here and tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities so i am the artistic director and ceo of circa uh which is a contemporary circus company based in brisbane uh but working all around the world so my dual jobs have multiple uh, and overlapping responsibilities. My CEO role is very much the CEO role that any anyone plays, which is I am appointed by the board to lead the organisation to recruit and manage the executive staff to set, refine strategy and report against it and deliver on it um, uh, and to not stuff it up. Um, my role as artistic director is to create an artistic vision for the company to oversee all our, everything that happens on stages, all our productions, remounts, as well as our workshops and engagement programs. Uh, and I'm ultimately responsible for everything that happens in that sphere. Now those roles in the performing arts are often split because they are both kind of equal, necessary, and often mutually antagonistic or oppositional. So when you have them yourself, you spend a whole lot of time uh, shadow boxing with yourself, coming, working out whether you want to be pre-compromised or challenge that budget, um, whether you want to uh, pursue that big idea in an artistic sphere, even if it opposes strategic challenges or, or um, course corrections or pivots that you may not be intending. And that creates um, a particular, you know, a third role, which is artistic director and CEO. It's the kind of and in there that makes it particularly um, challenging and fun. Yeah, it, it certainly seems unusual. Uh, I've had uh, CEOs of performing arts companies on uh, the podcast and have recruited for them many times. And, and so is that by choice from your perspective or by necessity that you combine both? 
Uh, look, it's mainly by history, I think, but also um, when you've been in a place for long enough, you you kind of know how it works intuitively and, and intrinsically. Um, and I think those are difficult skills to to um, to replicate or to to outsource in the short term. What I, what I think we have though is we have a three person executive. Um, Sean Cumberford, our executive director, and Danielle Kelly, our executive producer, and they are brilliant. And we work very flat and level across the three of us. So the CEO function for me is much more uh, a deal breaker, a setter of agendas, um, and a, a a source of advice and um, upward channeling to the board rather than a kind of hierarchical structure, except if it really needs to be. And that is very seldom. Um, so I think if, practically speaking, I think, a, a you know, I think having a, a switched on and, and super talented executive team is, is key to key to what we do. Mm-hmm. And for those- making those roles work together. Yeah. Uh, and for those people who aren't familiar with Circa, um, to describe the organisation. Um, the organisation. So we are a company that is essentially split down the middle. Mm-hmm. We're about 50 to 70 FTEs, depending on the, the day and the counting mechanism. Um, about half of those are a full-time ensemble of acrobats, the only full-time ensemble in Australia. So something in the round the 25 grows sometimes and they're employed basically on ongoing contracts we we work with with um contract staff as well but that's the bulk of our performing ensemble and that's like a high-end sport team is probably the easiest way to think about it they have to be managed they have to be uh physiotherapy cared for nurtured they work around the world they're exceptional young artists and human beings and they work in a very regimented disciplined way uh, because we have to do that. They schedules and transfers and baggage and the whole kind of kit and caboodle of touring, uh, which is our, our main our main bread and butter. The rest of the organization is pretty much a typical arts organization, except for the fact that it's very busy. And that means we have we have a, a small marketing team, we have a small finance team, we have a small engagement team, we have an artistic team of associate directors, head of circus who look after the the acrobats, but also all the the guest artists and creatives. We have a delivery team that does our producing and production technical direction, and those teams kind of work up through a heads of structure to the three executives, and then I I me and and Sean, usually our executive director, attend board meetings and and we have a a board as a we're a not-for-profit, we're a company limited by guarantee and registered charity. Mm -hmm. And so you were saying there's about 25 uh, performers uh, and having been to many of your performances, it seems that there's probably, you know, six to eight in any particular uh, uh, performance. So does that mean you sort of have three groups travelling the world at any one time? Uh, it's not quite as simple as that, but we have multiple groups. So sometimes we have last week, the last few weeks, we've had four different shows on in different places. Sometimes we only have one or sometimes none. 
our shows generally range in size. Two is our smallest number of acrobats on stage. 18 is our largest. Right. Um, they often settle around 10 with some around the seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple of twos and threes. So there's a fair bit of kind of okay. um, juggling and shuffling. We, we, we are not what you would call, um, uh, we're not Ikea. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everything comes flat packed. We have Ikea kind of touring <laughs> things where you say, look, sure. these shows fit in the back of that van and we can drive them quickly. But most of what we do is to try and have the impact of bespoke furniture with as close to an Ikea-based delivery system behind it as we can. Uh, that works patchily at best. And that's because as a most kind of medium sector arts organisations are working with, you know, piece together systems and resources made on the fly. Uh, you know, we chuck the whole thing off a, a cliff and then, you know, figured out whether it would fly or not rather than actually building it from the ground up and taking off in, in measured good time. But I do think that, um, I do think that we, we've, we pride ourselves as an organization on being uh, non-toxic. Uh, and I think my current, philosophy is that uh if you you have to kind of have the right people they just have you have to have the right people on the bus if they're not mm. on the bus then it, it doesn't work and so we've been putting a lot of energy into making sure that um that that's the case and to just use a, a quick example in the middle of covid in may 2021 i took a when international travel was locked down i took a group of artists overseas for an open-ended tour. We didn't know when or if they would be able to get back. Uh, They took their first break in March 2022. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting at that point that a group of them might say, look, we just can't do it anymore. We need to go and see our families. Every single one of them returned and wanted to return back to tour. and Every single one of them was supported. The reason we did that was we picked the right subset from the ensemble. We worked with a sports psychologist. We worked with a a sports physician. We supported them psychologically and physically. We we, we chose people in a very multi-stage process where they didn't influence the result, their selection. didn't they nobody was going putting their hand up because they thought they may lose their job or be thought of badly if they didn't we were very careful to kind of keep it as very un, uninflected and un, unskewed as possible and because we got the right people the tour is still going that group's arriving today in edinburgh fantastic and because you're a brisbane-based organization obviously working globally uh the performance team you know how many of those are australians versus uh uh, people that you know work for you internationally. Look, it varies a bit, but almost all of our core ensemble are Australian. Mm-hmm. We generally have this at the moment. We have five, four, or five that are uh, international, and that's because we 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 had one long term standing international, and then we seeded that that group that went overseas. We sent seven. And we started with four internationally based people because there was a danger we wouldn't be able to get there at all. And I had some big creation projects on and I didn't want to start completely from scratch. 
So we actually created a European-based ensemble. They were rehearsing out of Riga. They were there for three months before the, the Australians arrived. So we had a time to build, train, and get ready. Right. And uh, Sam, obviously you've been with Circuit for some time, 23 years, but let's... Uh, Forever. Uh, <laughs> well, I imagine after 20 years, 23 years, it might feel a little bit like that. But let's, uh, let's go back to, you know, a bit of your history. So, Yaron, tell us a little bit about where you were born and, you know, early life. So I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, from uh, Jewish immigrant parents, uh, grandparents who left... Um, Eastern Europe. My parents were born in South Africa. We immigrated to Australia in 1980. I went to school in Sydney and went to the University of New South Wales, where I studied arts. Um, I then went to the night of the National Institute of Dramatic Arts and studied directing. And I worked in um, freelance theatre as a director, uh, I would say fairly unexceptionally, uh, because I was involved in the slow realisation that plays really bored me. And plays were the thing you get taught at the National Institute how to direct. So I, that took me a couple of years to figure out that my plays were boring because, well, I think plays are boring. Uh, and I then started, I also, I was, at, over that period of time was working in museums. I had a, started as a three-month role as an artist in residence at the Australian Museum. Uh, and that turned into a five-year kind of um, experience, which was brilliant. And I worked there and worked on bringing performance into museums, but also working on uh, exhibition design, experience design, which made me really think about the kind of phenomenology or, or, or you know, experience design of things, thinking about them not from what it is we made, but from how they were experienced by people. Um, and then I saw a job advertised in Brisbane for a company called Rock and Roll Circus, and I applied. And um, it was a company that had been an ensemble for many years, and that ensemble had fallen down, and they needed an artistic director, and they really wanted a patsy, somebody that they would just be able to keep doing what they did. And so they appointed me, and that was, uh, I think, from their perspective, a pretty catastrophically bad choice because I came in and uh, it took a few years to move everyone along from the ensemble, change the name of the company. And it wasn't a grand design. I didn't come in with a hidden agenda. I just came in with a, let's make this thing work. And I think I've still been doing that every day for the last 23 years. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly unusual to talk to somebody who's been in a role for 23 years. And I imagine over that 23-year period, you know, there's been some significant evolutions and uh uh, redefining of the organisation and uh, to what it is today. Talk us through some of the, you know, the pivotal moments during that time. Uh, yeah, look, the, I, I don't feel like I've been in the same organisation two days in a row, most, you know, for the, those 23 years, which is one of the reasons I find it so such a great place to work. It's not boring. Um, I, look, the first the first part was really the initial ensemble and the history of Rock and Roll Circus in Brisbane, which was a very important local arts organisation that had frankly fallen at hard times. It had lost its sense of value and direction, not be, not through any particular uh, neglect, but just because organisations change over time and if you don't disrupt or catch them in the right phase, they just keep, you know, you keep doing what you're doing, but the world no longer needs it. So that required a period of time, and that was roughly 99 to 2004 where we changed the name to Circa, and that was obviously a huge change. 
We had in 2004, we'd submitted at the end of 2003, a strategic plan that said we will be an international touring, flagship touring organization within three years. At the time, we didn't have a single tour. We didn't have a single contact. We, no one was buying our work. By 2005, we were touring internationally. In 2006, things really started to hot up. So there was a series of random events. We made the right show. Some of the right person heard about it. Um, that got us touring internationally. I think coming and doing Edinburgh in 2009, which then got us a season at the Barbican and kind of catapulted us to the next level, I think was an incredibly important part of that journey, working for the Cultural Olympiad, um, uh, doing shows in cathedrals around the UK, um, building a kind of growing the ensemble from three to four to five to seven to 14 to 21 to 20 north of there, I think has been a, a series of kind of incremental journeys. Um, watching your first staff members get paid sort of more than, you know, have more than uh, two, uh, you know, more than double digits is a really mm -hmm. exciting thing. Right. Um, I, that was kind of a bit of a milestone for me. You go, wow, there's a there's a something that was a hundred in that figure. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, um, you know like the the moments that stick out are really the moments where and you could do something that you couldn't do before. And in the arts, we're all completely existentially, um, eternally challenged by money. Right? The only thing we know is there's not enough of it. There never will be. So and for me, money, and for most people who work in the arts, money is not an end. It essentially is freedom. If you have enough, you can do cool stuff. Mm. But the moments you have, we started a, this training center, our circuit classes in 2004. And, I, and probably about two days later, our old photocopier literally blew up. Like there was a cloud of cartoon-like black smoke in the office. And everybody was really panicked because we didn't have any money at this time. And someone said, oh, I see if we can get a fix. And I remember thinking, no, we're bringing in enough turnover for us just to go down to the shop and buy a photocopier. And that felt immensely liberating. Like we weren't beholden on you know, the, the old economy of scale because of actions and things we had done ourselves. And I feel like that ability to create value and opportunity uh, historically has been, those are the kind of those really small things, buying that photocopier, getting that extra role, being able to support that person to go and study or take an internship or whatever. Those are the things we feel like we couldn't have done this six months or five years ago. And it feels really good to be able to do it. So you're in these big uh, milestones, taking the business internationally and growing the team and, you know, getting people up to earning a reasonable living. Apologies, this is a very noisy dog back near me. But uh, uh, how much of that was by design versus by circumstance? Did, did, did you have a plan or was it simply you just uh, allowed things to evolve easefully and gracefully? Um, oh, look, I, you know, I think everyone, what did Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, we always had a plan. And ironically, in retrospect, the plan seemed to work at several stages. There were plenty of parts that didn't, but a lot of it seemed to work. But it was never really that much design. We weren't, we're not an organization that reads, you know, 
KPIs on a daily basis and aligned strategy for that work week's work. And, you know, it was more, we had a sense of direction where we think we thought we should go and we worked to get there. And in this business, luck is a huge factor. Um, and we've had a, our fair share of bad luck. We've done big high profile seasons that have been suboptimal and circus. You're often working with injury, particular dynamics of the group. A show might've been made three or four or five years ago by a different group of people. And this iteration, while it looks good on paper, doesn't work kind of chemically or energetically. You have conflicts, you have, there's a whole lot of reasons why any given thing might not work or work that well. And I feel like um, we, there's a certain amount of, you know, work hard and, you know, put your head down and work hard and trust that the universe will provide. Because if it wants to end you, God forbid, it is more than capable of ending you very, very quickly. And I think that's true for most, most businesses in the arts. You don't need a lot to go wrong for something to go very wrong. But realistically, we've been, we've been lucky and we've had, you know, and I think we've made good work. And how about, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier you've sort of got one foot in each camp. Uh, the CEO who's focused on P&Ls and balance sheets and running a profitable enterprise and uh, the other foot in the creative director space where one to put on the best performances you can and I imagine creating the best opportunities for the people in the team, et cetera. How do you balance or manage the emotional challenge that comes with having to sail what would often be, you know, very uh, turbulent waters? No, it's a, it's a really great question. I, I feel like uh, I don't know how to do that yet. Um, I, my, my degree of care for the people that I work for um, is... Uh, exceeds what it should do for somebody whose job is essentially to put people into artful danger. Um, and that, that creates, I think, a, you know, a really great degree of uh, challenge, stress and, and tension. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I get the show reports from overnight if they're overseas. And the last line of every show report by design says all artists healthy. And that's the, that's the first bit I read. If that's true, then I can go back and read the bits up the top about how many people and how well the show was received. But All Artists Healthy is the, I, I want to be the last line for everyone else that we finished well. But for me, it's the, it's the first and really the only important piece of information. Um, but my job is if I don't put people in danger, none of us have jobs and people have chosen and understand that danger and it's mitigated and risk managed. But sometimes it's, it's we're in difficult positions. We have complex travel. We have difficult shows. Uh, the shows themselves are dangerous and demanding. And sometimes there's inadequate preparation time or new cast members and, and things even to very experienced acrobats can unfortunately go wrong. Um, I, I, I don't think there is a way to balance the emotional load. I think you just have to kind of manage the imbalance um, and accept that sometimes I'm going to turn around and say this is this bit's going to be really hard for the next days or weeks. I think reminding yourself that not much of this will matter in in six months and none of it will matter in sixty years 
is probably a, a pretty good place to start having a sense of perspective. So trying to keep people out of hospital and keep them out of jail is probably a pretty good place to start. Uh, uh, trying to keep people employed is the next stage. And then trying to keep people, uh, audiences thrilled and delighted and deeply moved around the world, uh, participants engaged um, and social frontiers um, challenged and, and um, stretched are all things that we, the kind of good we can do. And what about in terms of your own evolution as a CEO? I mean, obviously the business has changed substantively since you joined 23 years ago, you know, growing internationally and growing uh, uh, to really such a highly regarded international organisation now. How have you developed yourself professionally and have you looked to mentors or coaches or what, what are the ways that you've um, continued to enhance your skills in that capacity? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing thing. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to have had a few great board members. My current chair, Michael Lynch, uh, is, you know, is there presently. I, I have a, a fairly large network of peers and, and uh, kind of informal mentors around the world that I, I often, in Australia, that I often talk to. Um, I read compulsively and my, my books are literally kind of evenly split between creative, inspiring kind of fiction and poetry, management kind of leadership and personal development books and artistic theatre, opera, music kind of books. And so literally at any given stage, I'm probably reading several of each. Uh, and I think my brain is kind of wired to do that. I, I, I'm far from the, the smartest person in the room, but I can hyperthread kind of you know, and that that is a is a is an advantage for sure. It's a uh, a big suitcase of books unless you use a Kindle. I it's all on my iPad and uh, <laughs> and and abs absolutely I I'll, uh, it's it's definitely a um uh it's definitely the, it's made travel a lot more possible since the Kindle and iPad for sure. Uh, I hear you. I, I and bad TV. Uh. Never <laughs> a discount watching, as I did, 10 episodes of The Blacklist on a long-haul flight because you just don't want to think anymore. Oh, really? That's one show I've never been able to get into, The Blacklist. But, it's uh... not a good show at all. I watch it because <laughs> it's bad. See, right. This is the thing. It's like um, when you when you take your hard drive and you want it wiped, it, when we just do an erase, it doesn't erase. When you take it to a computer store, they put ones and zeros over the hard drive. They literally just wipe out everything on the drive. That's what bad TV does. And there's a time when you go, this is just what needs to happen. I'd come out of some very challenging, fractious, complex situations. And I was like, I just need to overwrite my brain. I need to just <laughs> fill with nonsense so it can reset. Oh, and then a couple enough. of very long walks, a couple of good podcasts and, uh, and sitting, sitting in a, in a, Latvian cafe writing my thoughts out and we're kind of, we're ready to go. And so we're sitting here now, it is uh, already in the second half of 2022. You know, COVID is largely behind us, although uh, uh, still rearing its head. Exactly. Yeah, what, what's looking to the future now? I mean, what are you excited about for both Circa and your own career? Uh, um. Uh, oh, sorry. What am I excited by? I'm, I'm really excited by what has happened to the world. Not thrilled or delighted, but I'm, I'm, 
I like challenges and I like the idea, you know, I, I think there are, you know, there are wartime generals and there are peacetime generals and I'm definitely a wartime general. I'm much better fighting the fight than maintaining the kind of the wheels of the machine. And luckily at Circa, there's never a time when the machine is running smoothly for very long, just because of the nature of our work. The world is changing irrevocably. We are preparing and have been for some time for a post-touring world. We won't be touring this way uh, in the future. Uh, as sustainability concerns increase and as profit margins decrease, we're going to have to find different ways of being and generating returns in, in future worlds. Um, I think the challenges of this world, it's increased kind of inability to talk to its talk to itself to have a conversation it's it's kind of splitting into people who mutually exclusive tribes who uh, no longer believe there's any point in talking to the other side creates a, a, a kind of huge problem for everyone but i think a huge opportunity for the arts because if you think about what culture and art as as the highest point of culture is it's kind of refinement is that it is a medium through which thoughts and human emotions can swim. And so if you're sitting in a show or you're sitting in an experience, there is a chance that you will have a profound human moment and will connect you with every other human. And in that point, they are hopefully harder to want to oppress or uh, deny them the vote or anything else. I'm not claiming this is going to be the cure to everything or anything necessarily, but I think it's inherently a bit of a force for good. Mm. And I, I'm excited by figuring out what that looks like at the same time as trying to create sustainable business models for employing a fairly large staff of people on a fairly narrow funding mm. base. Um, and I want to make great shows with great people. I mean, as, as a director, there's no director in the world who would say anything other. We all have our spiel and our spin and why we do this or that, but ultimately we want to be in a room with people we love making work we're proud of and that we think the world uh, needs and, and will appreciate and admire. And of course we're often wrong. Uh, and well, it, well, I mean, it's certainly interesting, you know, just to unpack that a little bit more. I mean, uh, every time I talk to you, you seem to be in some exotic new place in the world. <laughs> so how does that sit with you? You know, um, to sustainability and profitability and so on, you know, a, a reconsideration of the touring model. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, that would give you a bit of a heavy heart or am I mistaken? Well, I think, I think there, is a, there is a great, we've been sold a huge lie, which is if you or I, Richard, don't get on another plane or do get on another plane, nothing changes, right? The great lie we have is that the individual is responsible for the overall impact on the climate of their own choices. And these are irrelevancies, they're statistical rounding errors. What is important is the individual's uh, participation in political and social processes that enable things like sufficient numbers of electric car charging stations, uh, delivery of clean flying technology, um, pricing in carbon into what we currently do so that we can 
we can we can we can marketize it and we can we can um, monetize it and enable it to be dealt with by by market mechanisms. These are not individual choices about whether I or Circa fly. I've never caused a plane to fly or not fly, but we've been told to feel guilty for this because the great move of capitalism, and I'm am a capitalist in many ways, but the great move of capitalism is to make the individual feel responsible for things government and society as a whole need to need to address. And that way, and it's a it's a it is an absolute lie. It's designed to create a context where profit can be maximized by corporations. That's that is kind of, you know, there is no sense in which um, my individual actions by themselves here are going to make any difference to anything, regardless of whether I recycle or fly or don't fly. My participation in political processes, sadly, often fairly um, uh, ineffective and now degraded processes is the thing that's going to make going to really make a difference. We need to solve this problem as a planet. We need to solve this problem as a society and not, and so for me, the big challenges are about finding those places where we can maximize our opportunities and reduce the, the, the current situation, uh, our kind of impact on the current situation. That's a lot about sitting down, about having home bases and satellite bases, about not freighting excess amounts of freight about reducing our footprint because they're both kind of optics and doesn't it helps a tiny bit but at the same time in working on a kind of sectoral level to be able to say we need a response the arts needs a response how do we tour internationally what is the size of that footprint uh, there's you know i mean I, I i feel like i feel like we have good to do on this planet uh and we don't want that to be disturbed by bad optics or, or bad choice making. But at the same time, we shouldn't be under any illusion that it's our, it's our problem. Mm. We are caught in the web of that problem, but it's a really thorny situation and it's very difficult even to have a conversation about it because uh, there is no, you know, the problem isn't whether you recycle, you know, to use a simple example, whether you recycle your milk bottle, it's why does milk come in this form? What is the, what is the carbon? How does the carbon accrue over the mm-hmm. whole supply chain? Why are we drink? What is the carbon impact of a cow in Australia? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that mean that your choice to whether to recycle your milk bottle at the end of the day is essentially irrelevant, not unimportant for making you conscious of it and, and, politically or kind of socially active about it, I think it's crucial. I'm not suggesting we don't recycle, but I'm suggesting thinking that recycle is a virtue or an end in itself or failure to is a, is a problem, a huge kind of um, sidelines on what the main argument is. Mm. So, so I know it's a bit of a long answer, but I, I just think it's really important to go, we are part of a sector and we're part of a civilization. When, when the history of this civilization gets written, how we dealt with climate change is going to be the first biggest item. Mm. Pretty close to that will be, as it is for every civilization, what was our, how did we express ourselves? What was the deepest, most profound expression of who we were at a given time? And that's what the arts do. Those are not coincidences that those major political, geopolitical crises and our arts and expression are connected. They're absolutely part of the same thing. They're about how how does our species 
communicate, imagine, express itself. And I'm very proud to be in the bit that does the expressing. Mm. I'd look, uh, we could talk about that for hours, I think, but uh, certainly, you know, firstly, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And, and if you look at historical society, you know, it was the performers, uh, the jesters who were able to be in court and essentially make fun of the rulers, you know, not without um, recourse, but certainly they were given permission. So, uh so part of the role of, you know, particularly circuit, you know, the space that you're in is, is one of holding, you know, government and big business and so on to account through the stories that you tell and the things that you do. And the other thing is that, you know, it, it was very much part of that whole culture about traveling the land and taking these messages out, you know, to, uh, to people who wouldn't have access otherwise. So uh, I hear exactly what you're saying. And, uh, and so I imagine it must be uh, interesting times to sit there and go, we have a mission, we are doing good in the world, there is some constraint, but at the same time, uh, you know, let's wait and see what happens. Look, absolutely. I think the other thing to say is that the world has been obviously profoundly, uh, profoundly sh shaken, but I don't know whether changed by COVID. Um, uh, I was listening to Yuval Sharon the other day saying how nothing changed, so much changed after World War I, but nothing changed after the influenza epidemic that followed it, that epidemics historically don't have anywhere near the cultural impact of wars and other kind of sudden catastrophes. I think for, I think for us, the, we are so intimately connected with whether somebody buys a ticket. And Circa is a manufacturing wholesaler. We try most of the time never to sell a ticket to a member of the public. We sell shows to people who know their public well, who have the data and the ability to reach them. And our peers are a couple of thousand presenters and, and festivals around the world. So our that means that we are still, even, even despite that, we are in a chain which if somebody doesn't buy a ticket at the end of the day, we don't get a fee. And if we don't get a fee, we can't afford to employ people. Mm. So we have to maximize that reach whilst holding our integrity and our artistic truth and keeping our conversations and uh, artistic kind of journeys and adventures alive. And at the same time, find sustainable, replicable, scalable business models that work. And of course, the only way to do that is to accept that it's impossible and then get on with it. Mm which is, to my mind, very much like parenting. Um, you know, you know you're going to stuff it up somewhere. The aim is to not stuff it up too badly in a place that really counts. Yeah, absolutely. I had to think about that for a moment. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's, uh, I think it's inevitable. Uh, and so, yeah, just in terms of your own personal situation, Yaren, and I know that uh, you've got uh, other things to get on with, but... Um, you know, 23 years uh, with Circuit now, I imagine that, uh, you know, that it, uh, there's lots of ongoing challenge and lots of ongoing opportunity and so on. But, you know, is, is this job for life for you? Are you going to get your second job watch there or what's the future look like? 
Um, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about it a lot because I, I've been always of the opinion that there's a time when someone should take you, tap you on the back if you haven't realized to take you out the back and put you down mm. professionally. Um, and I'm kind of, I keep waiting for the tap. Um, and I work very hard to make sure that I'm not the person who deserves that. I don't want to be that guy who stayed too long. At the same time, I think I personally have a lot to offer uh, a number of uh, sectors. I've, I have a, a son with a disability. I'm interested in working in the, at some point in the disability sector, um, trying to make some kind of sense of policy and get some kind of cogent, you know, help people on a different level. Um, but I'm very happy where I am. I'm, I'm constantly challenged. And I, one of the things that I love about Circa is there will be very few days where I don't think this is the best job in the world. And there'd be very few days where I don't think I want to quit at least once in that day. Right. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a dichotomy, but I understand what you're saying. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I feel like they, you know, we have, a, we have a, a great tendency to want, as a species, I think, to avoid tension. And I am a, I'm a really big believer that, you know, my business is tension. Theater, theater, theater is tension, and I don't think tension is bad. I just think the wrong kind of tension is bad. So for me, um, my my kind of um, uh, working is that we should, you know, there's a there's a uh, a great definition. I forget the name of uh, uh, Timothy's his first name. Um, writer who says that the role of a leader is to increase intellectual friction while decreasing social friction. And I think that's, I think that's very true. When you think that when you put your oar into the water and you, you push it backwards, you're not actually pushing it backwards at all. You're pushing it against the friction of the water and that's what's driving your boat forward. But it's inevitable that when you do that, your arm gets sore. And at some point you land up with some water in the back, in the boat and you slip and you're slightly out of time with other people. That's a very healthy and natural part of the process. Our job is to keep that within the bandwidths that make sense. And I think one of the really key business principles that I've always operated on is to treat our art like it's a business and our business like it's an art, which means we should treat out with when it comes to our art, we should be figure out how we can be so efficient, how we can deliver it cleanly and as safely as possible and, and as rigorously as we possibly can. And when it comes to our business, we should assume that if we're looking for the same opportunities in the same places with the same tools as everyone else, we're going to find the same thing. So we have to be creative, resourceful, plucky. We have to not be afraid to hustle and challenge and disrupt. And when you're at the front of your pack and it's a small pack in a small puddle, you, the disruption usually has to come from within. Mm. Well, I think it's wonderful that you are in, you know, the face of some very realistic perception around challenges and, and uh, you know, looking at how the sector is changing and some of the, the sort of uh, uh, risks associated with, you know, what's happening with the environment. So you, you can still remain very positive and very uh, optimistic about the future. So uh, now before we wrap it up, Yaron, is, is there anything else you'd like to just sort of add in relation to circa or uh, any final comments? Um, no, but I, I do think it is, I, I do think I'm generally, generally and genuinely an optimistic person, partly because I don't really understand what the alternative would be. Mm -hmm. um, 
why you would bother. Perhaps I'm better to say that I'm a I'm a productive pessimist. I kind of acknowledge the the challenges. I don't necessarily think it's all going to work out. But if you can't put that behind you, there's not much point in doing it. I want to create a, a I think that the great privilege of both being both an artistic director and a CEO is that you get to create a little world. And the question is, what is the rules that govern that world? What is it, mm. What are its values? At Circa, our values are quality, audacity, and humanity. And they've been that way for a very long time because I can't think of anything else that it should replace them. I want us to make great stuff. And whether that's a show or an Excel spreadsheet or a marketing press release or an email backend system, I want it to be great. Mm-hmm. Audacious. I want, I want the person who does that press release or that email system to go, there might be something better or here, let's try this. And I want them to wake up in the morning and have an idea and be able to have it delivered by that afternoon. I don't want to get stuck in multiple levels of bureaucracy and humanity, which is, I want to care for the people around me. I want them to care for the people around them. And I want to kind of find a way in which as a group, as a company, we can be, uh, a model of a better way of being together, which is direct, it's non-toxic, it's unafraid to have tough and, and courageous conversations. It's not in any way a, uh, we're not going to sit on the floor, drink tea and say namaste to each other. It's going to be at times, it's going to be fast moving. It's going to be challenging, but we're working with people who get it, who can keep up and who want to be there. Mm-hmm. And for those people, for those people, it should be thrilling. Well, uh, I think it's exciting times ahead. And as somebody who uh, lived one weekend a month for four years in a Buddhist monastery, I think there's a time and a place for saying namaste. There's also a time and a place for, uh, there's a time and a place for uh, showing it how it is. Well, Yaron, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful time in Edinburgh. And uh, I look forward to uh, my next set of performance. I've been to many, as I've told you before, with my children. We are big fans. And uh, uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Richard. Much appreciated. Okay. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, mate. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.